0: Our reading today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 19, and Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and his testimonies, and his statutes, which he has commanded you, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, I I was quite tempted this morning actually to completely change the the content of the sermon to a totally different message. Um, I, I, I heard a great summary of the book of Acts last night, and um, let me just say, we've done a series in Acts, uh, and we've also spent much time in Acts too, but, you know, as a believer, uh, you read the Bible over years, and you see all these things that are just eye-opening every time. They're just constantly, uh, you know, expanding your understanding of who God is, his glory, his power, what he does in the earth, what he does with his people. And so uh, I was really tempted to, to change it. But I think actually that this was good to read for today. Um, last week, we, we started off by noting that Christianity is not an abstract religion. Christianity is not a set of beliefs that are held in the mind and just have to be agreed to in the mind, and then you're a Christian. Uh, Christianity is a holistic worldview. Uh, To use the language of the postmodern philosophers, Christianity is totalizing. It it has total claims about life, the nature of the universe, the nature of the world, the nature of every person you've met, even yourself. And Christianity must be pressed out into all of life, therefore. Because Jesus Christ is Lord of all of life and all of the universe, then he must become the, the Lord of your life. And as a disciple, you're seeking to make His Lordship real. Uh, one, the reason I brought up that summary of Acts was that the the summary that I heard of Acts presented Acts in a different uh, framework. And instead of looking at, uh, although many good things we've we've talked in in Acts before, this summary that the the sermon was on, I was watching it on YouTube. Uh, this the summary uh, was about the fact that. Acts really can be considered to be the greatest testimony to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And a student of Acts or someone who's read the book of Acts, you may understand that the book of Acts is filled with, and in fact, actually, really the kind of the way the stories move along is confrontations where the apostles and deacons and various Christians are giving presentations of the gospel, and then they get in some sort of uh, legal trouble they either uh, the Sanhedrin or a Roman official, uh, throw them in jail. And then the entire point of the book of Acts at that point is saying that they're let out of jail. Why? Because they shouldn't be in jail. They're exonerated over and over again by Jesus Christ. The book of Acts actually ends with the fact that Paul is in, in jail, but he doesn't, that's not the time that he dies. He's actually let out of jail. And so the entire structure of Acts is proving that Jesus Christ is the real king. He overturns and overrules all of these authorities which are seeking to hamper his name, namely the most important one being Saul, uh, who he converts. Saul was previously uh, persecuting the church, and the Lord said, why are you persecuting me? And so Jesus Christ unites with his body. He identifies with his people in a way that he himself is saying that Paul is persecuting him. And so we see this structure of the Lordship of Jesus being expanded in Acts. Acts is the final testimony in the written record of the New Testament that Jesus Christ is Lord. And by testimony, I mean the the epistles contain that idea, but their doctrine and their kind of a narrative of what's going on behind the church. Acts is the capstone of the gospel in which Jesus Christ is saying that he's the Son of God and the Christ, the true King, to sit on the throne of David. And as we understand that, Uh, that really helps us to understand what Jesus is talking about in this passage uh, with the parable of the tenants. And we're going to see how that plays out. But like I said last week, Christianity is not an abstract religion. And also Christianity is a set of of values and a faith which is living and active. And that faith is not just held in the mind, but also believed and trusted on in the heart. And therefore, we have to understand that Christianity is not just about individual salvation. You are saved individually, one at a time, but as a people, as the church, God is forming us for a particular mission, and that mission is to carry on what happens in the the book of Acts. Uh, Luke begins his book in Acts chapter 1 by saying, in my last book, Theophilus, he was writing it to a person. Uh, This was a personal account that Luke was commissioned to do. I'm not sure if he got any money, but he was writing it, and he said, in the first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so the implication here, in Acts one eight, Jesus says to his apostles, I will send the Holy Spirit, and in that day you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, and then Judea. And Jerusalem, if you don't know, is in Judea. So it's not like he says Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. It's not like the Tri-City region or Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky. Uh, he's saying you're going to be my witnesses, in Jerusalem, then expanding to Judea, then expanding to Samaria and the surrounding regions, and then the utmost parts of the earth. So you can think of Jesus understanding the gospel and the Holy Spirit coming as a giant uh, divine droplet of water, and the rings will ripple out throughout all of the world from, from there. And so, yes, we are saved one at a time. It is important and vital that you come to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ individually but as a people as churches as families as schools as, as as a culture within the larger culture we must press out the lordship of Jesus into every aspect of life and that is not an addition to the gospel that is part of the gospel that's a core element to the gospel So when we talk about being gospel-centered, we're not simply saying, oh, we need to represent what the work of the cross uh, over and over again, week by week. Yes, obviously that's central, but the cross is a great statement by Jesus Christ saying, I'm taking this land for me, if you will. Uh, Jesus Christ on the cross is crowned king, and he's crowned to be the king of the Jews, and he really becomes demonstrated as the one true king. And so, The political nature of the book of Acts gives a lot of light to the way that we understand passages like this. So, uh, that being said, uh, I think that there is one question that is probably the most important question from our readings today, is how did the Pharisees know that Christ was talking about them? If you remember from our reading, it says, that the Pharisees understood in verse 45 the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables they perceived that he was speaking about them it's important as a believer that when you're reading the scriptures you ask good questions you should pay attention and you should say well that's kind of weird uh you know it, for example when Jonah is um not wanting to go to Nineveh and you you may know the story of Jonah and the big fish uh God, God at one point says, "I have every right to be compassionate towards Nineveh because there's more than 100,000 people and much cattle." <laughs> and and you say to yourself, "Surely God doesn't care about cows, right?" Well, well, no. You, you should at that point you should ask a question. Now we're not going to go into why I think I think God does care about His creation, but the point is you should see things like that and then say, "Okay." The light bulb has gone off. I need to ask a question. I need to press this out. I think the best question we can ask from today's readings in Deuteronomy and Matthew is "What, why and how did the Pharisees know that Jesus was speaking about them? Uh, I don't think it was his tone. I don't think he pointed his finger and wagged it at them while he was uh, giving the parable. Jesus uses the biblical hermeneutic or an interpretive key, or if you want to think of it as a map, And then the legend, the thing that is on the bottom of the map that tells you what, you know, what is what, the distance and the topology and all that. Um, Jesus is using a map and a key of that map is the Old Testament. And so I believe that these two passages are uh, vital to understand each other and in seeing what Jesus is doing in bringing about the church in the New Covenant. So... With that, I want to look at five elements of today's readings. First is the promise, blessings, and obedience. It's not uh, necessary that you uh, perform in order to become a Christian. You become a Christian in order to be able to obey. Uh, the, The Bible is clear of God's promises over and over again. And immediately as good Protestant or lowercase r reformed folk, we might say, John, this is this is sounding like works righteousness. No, by no means. The Bible over and over again has good promises, and it encourages us to receive those promises. But guess what? The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. But what it doesn't immediately bring out, but is quite clear from the idea, is you have to chew. Taste and see that the Lord is good means God wants to give you goodness, but you have to be able to chew in order to, to actually eat and taste, and to understand God's goodness. And so it's often conveyed in gospel presentations like, God wants to give you a good gift, but you have to open the packaging. I think at that point, that's not the greatest metaphor, because I believe God makes Lazarus alive even when he tells Lazarus to come forth. Um, Lazarus is dead, and then Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And at that point, his brain's not working, his ears aren't hearing, and I think Jesus Christ makes Lazarus alive, and Lazarus responds and obeys. And so, likewise, that is how salvation works. But once we are born again, God has given us a set of uh, of steps, a, a way of life. Uh, Jesus says that He's the way, and understanding that Jesus Christ is the way, we understand that we must obey Him as disciples. Uh, it simply won't ever work if you never obey obey God. It just uh, you can't even imagine, if you take any time, you can't even imagine a way in which Christianity would be a wonderful experience as a person. It really would be, as Christ said, eternal life, unless there was some element of obedience. And so the promised blessings in God's covenant uh, always include obedience and, and require it. We believe that it's God's grace that allows us to be obedient, but we, it, we still must press out that obedience. Uh, The Israelites, after this uh, time in, in Deuteronomy 6, move into presumption and idolatry. And what do I mean by presumption? I mean they are given a set of good gifts, and yet they squander them because instead of being full of thanksgiving, they turn and become thankless. I want to look at the parable of the tenants in a little bit of detail and kind of show you how to understand and interpret it. I want to look at the cross and the judgment on Israel as being two sides of the same coin in this parable. Uh, Jesus asks them what's going to happen, and they give a right answer, and then he immediately ties it to the cross, and that's not uh, just a coincidence; it's intentional. And then finally, I want to talk about the fact that this fruit, this this obedience that we're speaking of, must remain. Uh, it's not okay when you're looking for grapes in a vineyard to find raisins. Uh, raisins are tasty. But they're not grapes uh i love if anybody has ever seen me go to the grocery store i cannot be uh i I almost can't make it by the green grapes section uh if if the price of green grapes is anywhere under three dollars and fifty cents a pound which is pretty expensive for grapes i will buy them as long as they're good if they're bad if i see one moldy one in the bunch i won't buy it because then tomorrow they'll all be moldy and the point is i never go and buy raisins um I always am able to walk right by the dried goods section because they're not as appealing. And so fruit must remain. It's not enough to show signs of life and then fall away from Christ and then have some some, some sort of understanding like, oh, well, I used to be a Christian or I've been to church a lot. Uh, fruit must remain. And it's God's intention that that fruit would remain. He's at work preserving it for you. So, uh, let's go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible. God creates the world. He establishes the the people. He, he divides the nations at the Tower of Babel and sends the nations throughout the world, and he chooses a special nation called Israel. Now, he says clearly that he didn't choose them because of anything that they had done good. It's more uh, just for them to be an example for the rest of the nations. It's kind of like in a classroom. If you have a, a number of students sitting around and you call one of them up to the blackboard or the whiteboard or the computer, whatever it is these days, and you you have them do a problem on the board. Now, depending on whether they get it right or wrong, it's either a good example or a bad example, but they're called up to the front nevertheless. They're, they're being put on display by God in the historical understanding that he is working through these people in order to demonstrate to the world what it's like for a nation to have God's laws. And having God's laws beforehand requires God's grace, and so he gives them a wonderful piece of land, probably one of the most special places in all of that geographic region. God chooses this land, and he uses the language of, of that's very similar to the Garden of Eden in how he describes this land. It's kind of like God's new garden uh, in the Mediterranean. God desires to bring his people into this land, but if he gives them good gifts without first preparing their heart, it will be clear that they are idolatrous and they will slip away from obedience. Verse 18 and 19, You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. God is not bringing Israel into a wilderness. They were captives in Egypt. God says that I carried you out on eagles' wings. This was a mighty rescue operation by God. God, through his divine power, wrought Terrible plagues on Egypt, destroying their economy, humbling their army, and killing all the firstborns such that Egypt was shamed. Egypt had been walking around as the world power at that time in her pride and haughtiness of spirit. And God humbles her and is desiring to bring out a people who will truly have blessing with humility. And so he gets Israel and he takes her out and immediately they begin to disobey. That causes them to go through a time of the wilderness. But even then, God brings them into a good land. He doesn't bring them into a bad land. He doesn't bring them into a land that's filled with stones and thorns and thistles. He brings them to a land that's already producing goodness. And so God is going to war against the nations. And he ties the obedience in verse 19 to Israel's willingness to expel the nations who are committing Horrible atrocities and idolatries in that land. In verse 19 it says, by thrusting out all of your enemies before you, as the Lord promised. If you go on to read in the in the Old Testament scriptures, every problem that Israel has is resulting from the fact that they do not do this one thing, pushing out all the inhabitants of the land. Solomon, the 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 king who built the temple at the end of his life, is deceived and deluded away by all of these women that he marries, concubines that he takes to himself and multiplies his harem, and it's a tragedy. And the reason he does this is, at first, political uh, alliances, toleration of the nations who are still in the land that God had commanded them to push out of the land. Uh, Now, it's clear that this is not some sort of genocidal uh, war that God's doing. Many times in Joshua, it says the other armies flee and leave. Nations actually left as Israel would come in, because they understood through the telling of the stories of what happened in Egypt that Yahweh fights for them. And so God is not commanding them to commit genocide. He is commanding them to judge people who are given to full-on wickedness. We could spend lots of time talking about how the idolatry, the the uh, <clears throat> satanic ritual worship that these nations who were living in that land at the time were doing, it involved human sacrifice. It involved, uh, temple prostitution. It was really wicked stuff. And God said, enough is enough. Their, their sin is complete. They are beyond redemption. I will judge them. And he uses Israel to do that. And it's important to understand that God is bringing judgment at the final time when they are beyond redemption, when they are beyond the ability to turn to him. And so God judges the land, in Israel and uses the Israelites who will then be identified with that land uh, to do that judgment. So just as a point of, uh, you know, um, apologetic understanding, never allow someone, if you're sharing the gospel with them, never allow them to throw this idea up that God is commanding genocide. Uh, When the nations flee before Israel, Israel doesn't go into the other lands, chase them down and kill them to the last man. Uh, If the, the inhabitants leave, they are being expelled from the land. That's God's intention. And, and it is never the case that you could even call it genocide, even if they didn't leave, because genocide presupposes uh, innocence. But what God is saying is that the iniquity, the sin, the, the depravity of these people is beyond innocence. All of them have to be cut off from life. And so God has morally sufficient reasons for expelling the old nations out of the land. And at this point, we begin to see God's very important desire for fruit to come out of this land. And we see a little bit of this in uh, the rules of warfare that are laid out in the last book. But God ordains the cutting down of the inhabitants of the land for the reason of the fact that they are not producing the fruit of righteousness. God wants life. God wants children. God wants goodness. And he wants righteousness in the heart of those who are seeking it. And just like in the days of Noah, when God saw men and understood that the thought and intentions of their heart was continual wickedness, God decided it's time to judge. He does the exact same thing here in the land of Israel. And so God is uh the, the title of this message is a war for fruit. God is on a campaign to bring about good fruit out of his special treasured land. And so he invests Israel with this task. And I, I want to bring out this aspect in the rules of warfare. We remember how I said earlier, you have to ask good questions. Well, look at this question uh, that we can see in Deuteronomy 20, 19 and 20. God gives Israel a set of instructions. Now, um, this for me is, is the basis for all understanding of, of um, you know, uh, tolerance. or Well, not tolerance, but... Um, mercy in the midst of a war because God himself has mercy. This isn't total warfare. This isn't Sherman's march to the sea where they burn everything and then after put, you know, dump salt in the fields. God is not wanting to destroy the land. He's wanting to remove those who are not producing the fruit in the land. And so he says in verse 19, uh, by the word of Moses, when you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees, By wielding an axe against them, you may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they be besieged by you? God is not at war with the land. He's at war with those who are using the land for the wrong reasons and in the wrong ways. Look at verse 20. Only the trees that you know are not trees for food, you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. Now, let's ask ourselves a good question. Why does God care about the trees? The point is that God's attempting to explain something to Israel through this visual sermon or this, if you want to call it, uh, you know, think back to your days in Sunday school, perhaps, an object lesson. God is demonstrating by this law to Israel his heart and intention in this war against the people in the land. Israel's prohibited from using fruit trees in their seed works because he wants those trees to remain so that once they're in the land, they would have the trees. And a student of an orchard or a tree company, you might be able to ask Stephen later, you understand that you can't plant a fruit tree and get fruit from it the next year. It takes, for peaches, it takes like 15 years. For apple trees, um, if you cut down a tree, you'll never get a tree of that quality unless you use some grafting techniques. It's very complicated to establish fruit trees. It takes a long time, and God is not—even though God has decided that the iniquity of these people is so great that it's time to commit war against them, he's not willing to sacrifice fruit in the process. And that's an interesting idea. It's, too, it's uh, twofold in the way that it is profound. The fruit trees can't be cut down because God wants the good fruit to remain even after the inhabitants are gone, and he's willing to allow trees to be sacrificed to commit the war. So at this point, we return back to Deuteronomy 6. God commands Israel to guard her heart as she inherits these blessings and these promises. God is bringing them into a good land and they will have a temptation that will be wrapped up in all these blessings. In the midst of the blessing and the prosperity that God is about to give, there is a command to guard their hearts. And here we see in Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, with great good cities you did not build, verse 11, houses full of all good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. When you eat the, uh, the fruit and are full, or when you eat and are full, verse 12, here's where the rub is, then take care lest you forget the Lord. Now, if you have bought a house, or you have attempted to establish a business, or you've attempted to do any sort of project, uh, that involves digging. Many of you brothers know what it's like to dig trenches now. Um, I w- I want to explain, this is, they have won the societal and economic lottery. God is bringing them into a land with houses, you know, $100,000, $200,000, right? To just get your modern mind around. A, a well, would, it would cost thousands of dollars to dig a well right now. If you If you went out to a field Uh, You'd have to secure the rights. There were no uh, governing bodies at this point. Um, But you would still have to dig 100, 200, 300 feet. You have to have a system by which you lower men down into a hole and then have people at the top pulling up buckets of dirt. And then at one point, you have to get the guy back out of the hole. So you got to have like five or six guys to pull him out via ropes. This is no easy thing that he's he's giving them a land with houses, with vineyards that are established, with cisterns, wells, that is, that are already dug, and they're receiving all of it. And then he says in verse 12, take care lest you forget the Lord. And so this idea is Israel is going to receive a great and good gift. God is going to bless them with in, literally insane levels of prosperity and blessing and goodness. And yet, God understands what's in their heart. And so he warns them in verse 12, take care lest you forget. And he identifies it with the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So they're not going to be slaves anymore. They're going to be landowners. They're not going to have to work for to make bricks. They're already going to have houses. God is giving them grace. And so Israel must be careful how she eats. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about the dietary laws, although those were in force at the time. Israel must understand that when she takes that food and when she takes the blessing and the prosperity, when she tastes the fruit of God's vineyard, the fruit of God's garden, she must guard her heart and keep that focused on the Lord. Proverbs 15, 17 says, better is a dinner of herbs, other translations say vegetables, uh, where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Uh, any of you young folk who don't like to eat your vegetables, you, this is a great verse for you. Um, it's better, it, we might be able to extend this verse and say, it's better to have a meal where there's thanksgiving, right, instead of love, than a, a fattened ox where there is presumption, greed, a lack of thanksgiving. It's better for Israel to have uh, tempered her, her indulgence of these blessings and and maintained thankfulness than Taken all of these blessings and believed it was their right, it was their their due inheritance. God wants to give his good people get, or give his people good gifts, but a good thing given to someone with an idolater's heart will destroy them. This is why it's so important as young young men, young women, to become faithful now, because God, when He brings you into maturity as you as you grow up. The, the temptations and the blessings, the volume gets turned up on both. And so here, this, this is demonstrating that Israel, although she's been given grace by God, she's been given the law, she will not preserve her heart in the true faith of Yahweh, but will move on to idolatry. So all the way forward past this, we know the story. Israel, time and again, wars against God. And Christ comes and is attempting to explain to them, their sin. I I think it's important that when you read the Gospels and you see the confrontation that Christ takes with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the spiritual leaders of Israel at the day, I, I hope that you can see that Christ is attempting to love them. He is loving them by telling them the truth. He is not confronting them in order to have some sort of political fireworks in front of Israel so that, you know, he would receive the worship of the people and they would diminish in their authority. He's attempting to show them their sin, and he does this over and over again through the use of parables. What is the sin that the Pharisees commit in the Gospels? Now, we know that the Pharisees are kind of these icky people, right? If you've, if you've been in a Christian home or a Christian church for any amount of time, you know intuitively we're not supposed to like the Pharisees, right? But what what is the sin that they're actually guilty of, which is why we don't like them, so to speak. Well, the sin is clear. Over and over again, Jesus names their sin, John the Baptist names their sin, and their sins in the Gospels are namely pride, selfish ambition, and this one I think is fascinating. They don't care about people so as to help them with their spiritual burdens or their actual burdens, and yet they want the praise of men. It's the most insidious form of the fear of man instead of the fear of God. It's Actually, fearing God allows you to have compassion on men, and the Pharisees demonstrate that they're unwilling to lift the burdens of those spiritually oppressed people, of the poor, of the sick, and they are all about, you know, priding themselves on their strict religious tolerance of of the law, their strict uh, obedience to the law, and yet they neglect the whole spirit of the law, and so they don't care about men, and yet they want praise from men. Jesus accuses them of loving to take the seat of honor at banquets and the seat of honor in the synagogue. And so here, these Pharisees, we, we see their sin for what it is. It's real sin. And it's grievous to God. They were supposed to be the spiritual leaders. And to get your mind around this, this is, this is as if Jesus is going into a denominational meeting, Uh, you know, put in whatever denomination you don't like. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But, It's hard for us to understand that he is talking to people in our modern context who would be considered good, preaching, you know, either pastors or evangelists. Jesus is confronting the spiritual leadership of that culture because it had become perverted. Israel is time and again seeing that there are good shepherds and there are bad shepherds. The major prophets, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, both talk about the fact that the land is at a lack for good prophets, and it's filled with prophets who are self-seeking. Sorry, not prophets, but shepherds. They they don't have good shepherds. They have bad shepherds. And Jesus is confronting these people who are supposed to be taking care of Israel, who are supposed to be tending her like a, a flock or caring for her like a garden, and yet they are abusing her. They are oppressing her and stealing from her. And so this is what Christ is at war with Against the Pharisees. So he gives a parable, and in this parable, which we heard read earlier, which we're going to examine briefly, he gives an accounting of Israel's history. And he gives an accounting of Israel's history in a poetic form or a narrative, a story, uh, a parable. And then he prophesies two things he prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem and all of Israel, and he prophesies his own death. And they're two sides of the same coin. We're going to see how that works. But God has sent prophet time and again, testing Israel whether she would bear fruit in keeping with repentance, a phrase that John the Baptist used at his final confrontations with Israel before they killed him for speaking against Herod's manifest adultery by stealing his brother's wife. Uh, The king of Israel was supposed to have a copy of the law and have to uh, have that law read to him and, and meditate on it. And yet, none of the other religious leaders of the day called him out on it. And so here, Israel is proving that she is unwilling to tolerate God's voice by the mouth of the prophets. And so the parable, as we heard earlier, culminates with God sending his son. But the people, these tenants, regard him as worse than the prophets. It says about some of the prophets that they didn't even kill him. They just, you know, abused him and sent them on their way. Now, we know from history, many of the major prophets uh, actually died horrific deaths uh, because because of Israel's sin. But here in the parable, it says that they treat the son worse than the hired attendants who are coming to get the fruit. These these guys who we understand to be prophets. And so Jesus, at this point in the story, invites them to finish it. I I, I want you to just think about how amazing what he's doing is, you know. He is inviting them to finish the story. He's asking them to judge what should happen to these people. This is kind of like when Solomon is uh, asked by two different ladies. Uh, one of the, uh, both ladies had children. One of the children has died. And they bring the child to the king, and they ask Solomon to, divide, uh, to, to decide between them. And Solomon says, well, there's two women and one baby. So uh, get a sword, cut it in half, and give each woman one of the, part, one of the parts. And one of the women, this is now, he, just hold on a second. Don't cast judgment on Solomon. One of the women says, great, give me half of the baby. And the other woman says, no, she can have the baby. And guess who the real mother is? It's Solomon's test. He wants them to, to, to testify about who they really are. They're both lying about the fact that they're the mother of this child, and by allowing them to give testimony, he actually uh, allows them to speak and reveal what's in their heart. And so here, these Pharisees want judgment, and they want, they want these people to pay. They understand God's righteousness, and so they say, these people should be put to death. He asked the elders, scribes, and Pharisees what should be done. Now, just to make it plain, uh, in our reading, it doesn't say that he was speaking to the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the temple. That's because it's earlier in the chapter, if you go back to verse 23, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. And then from there, there's 30 or so verses of dialogue back and forth between Christ and the elders, because they want to test him. And so he gives them an opportunity to finish the story. Verse 40, when, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to these tenants? And at this point, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they don't get what's going on. And so they testify against themselves. Verse 41 and 42, they said to him, that is the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the spiritual leaders of Israel said to Christ concerning what should happen with these wicked tenants, these wicked renters of the vineyard. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. Every once in a while, I think it's helpful to look at the King James, because it, the language is sometimes just more poetic. In, in the King James, it says, he will put those wretches to a wretched end. And and I think it's helpful sometimes to see that sort of language, because they're wretches, and therefore they're headed towards a wretched end. So going on a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits In their seasons. God is making a war for fruit. God wants righteousness from his people. The Pharisees are unwilling to produce that righteousness. And Jesus responds to them. He does note note he does not correct them. He adds something to, and and he's attempting to explain to the Pharisees, this was prophesied beforehand. You were warned over and over again by the prophets. I've sent prophet after prophet, you've killed one, stoned another. I'm sending the son, son, you're going to kill me, and then what should happen? They should be judged, and then he joins an idea to that idea, and then it's reiterated in the next two verses. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Jesus is not talking about a physical wall. He's talking about the temple and not the physical temple, but rather the temple as understanding the people of God. First Peter says that we as believers are being built up as living stones to be a temple for the spirit. Yes, of course, the Holy Spirit resides in our spirit. According to John 14 and 15, Jesus said the Holy Spirit who, as we mentioned last week, who is with you, will be in you. Certainly the Holy Spirit is in us, but First Peter also makes the case that God is not only wanting fruit from a land, he's also wanting a house to dwell in. He's wanting these people to be living stones. And Paul in 1 Corinthians says, if anyone builds, he must be uh, considering The foundation, and he must not build on any other foundation than what is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Jesus is identifying himself as the cornerstone, and the spiritual leaders should have been the builders. But they weren't. They rejected him. And by rejecting him, they are bringing judgment on themselves. And we're about to see Jesus reiterate that idea. These, langu- these, these somewhat confusing language uh, uh, experiences, these stories, these parables, when you're reading the Bible as a young believer, you have to do the work to get the interpretive richness of what Christ is trying to say here out. You have, to, you have to press it out. And so here, Jesus is warning them, these builders say that it was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. They answer extremely well. Christ connects something to their answer And then he reiterates it in these next two or three verses. Verse 43 and 45, Jesus starts speaking again. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruits. Jesus doesn't leave the meaning and interpretation of the parable up to question. He actually right here says that he identifies them as the bad renters of the vineyard who are killing the servants of the vineyard owner. And he's also identifying himself as the stone that the builders rejected. And then here he says, therefore, because of what you've answered, because of what's been prophesied, because of the understanding that I just gave you in this parable, I'm going to do something. And it's going to be the kingdom of God being taken away from you and giving to a people producing its fruits. And then he takes up that theme of the stone again he says in verse 45, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone or anyone whom it falls upon will be crushed. What Jesus is stating is he is the whole point. He is the stone. He's the center of what's happening in God's interaction with the people of Israel and the forming of the church. And should the stone fall on someone, it will be They will be crushed and dashed to pieces, never to be put back together again. But those who are shipwrecked on the rock of Christ, those who land on, those who finally put their trust in Christ, they will be broken so as to be mended. The prophets of old said, the Lord has torn us surely in order to heal us. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, if you abandon your search for righteousness in and of yourselves, your attempt to gain glory and honor as these religious leaders did, then you will be built on Christ. If not, Christ will crush you. And this is what Jesus is warning them about. And so we understand that these are two sides of the same coin. I want you to see, it's kind of, it's kind of important that you see that the verses are tied immediately together. In verse 41, they say that the vineyard will be given to someone else. It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the the elders, the scribes who say that. They say the vineyard will be given to someone else. Then the next, that's, you can think of it, A. And then B is, Jesus says, that he will be rejected. He's prophesying his crucifixion. A, then B, and then Jesus reiterates again, A, and then B. Verse 43, the kingdom of God equals the vineyard. It will be taken away from you and given to a new people. And those people will produce its fruit. Verse 44 and the one who falls on this stone, and when it falls uh, uh, on anyone, it will crush them. So Jesus is, is prophesying not only the destruction of Jerusalem and the judgments of Israel, but also that being uniquely identified with and tied to, connected to, his crucifixion. And it's important as Christians that we begin to see this warning because this is an internal principle that is always taking place. God is wishing. That those who are in his kingdom would bear fruit, but he is unwilling for to tolerate a lack of fruit. He didn't like the inhabitants of the land who were committing idolatry and wickedness, and so he expelled them out so that he could get fruit from the land. He brought Israel in, and for a time he tolerated her idolatries, of course, judging them at all times and restoring her and giving her grace and sending her warnings, and at the end she was unwilling to obey him. And so therefore, he brings all the judgments that he prophesied against her to come to pass, and then gives the kingdom to the church, a new people. And at this point, we as the church have to remember Paul's warnings in the book of Romans. He says, if the natural branch, that is Israel, was cut out and taken away, then we as those who have been grafted in, who have been joined to the root, which is Christ, the root of Jesse, then we too must take heed of this warning. We have to bear fruit. God is going to bring a miserable judgment on Israel and completely fulfill all of the warnings concerning the judgments that he lays out in Deuteronomy 28. And we, it would take days to read and explain all of those judgments. God is extremely interested in and invested in getting glory for himself by bringing about fruit in the land among his people. And these warnings, which were intended to sway Israel away from idolatry, um, she proved by her sin that her iniquity was so manifest that she wouldn't even heed these warnings. By the death of the Son of God, uh, God is forming a new people, that is the church, to bear the fruit of the kingdom. And so God is, uh, by Jesus Christ, is attempting to explain to them uh, that, that the new understanding of what it means to be a true vineyard renter, a, a faithful servant who doesn't put the talent in the dirt but rather invests it and brings uh, a reward. It is obedience of faith, not just religious externals, having nice robes, having the law memorized, having uh, going to synagogue or going to church. Jesus is attempting to explain to them that it is no longer uh, permissible to think that they're okay because they have Abraham as their father. He's attempting to explain they must be obedient in their repentance and turn from their idolatry. So as believers, how does this, what is does, I mean, what does this mean to us? Surely we have to heed the warnings, but as, as those who are followers of Jesus, as those who are seeking to be his disciples, it means that we have to understand how clear the claims of Christ's lordship are and then work them out into our lives. The gospel absolutely must bear fruit in your life. It's not enough for you to say, well, oh, I'm forgiven and Jesus loves me and I can remain in my sin because there's always grace tomorrow. If that is going on in your life, be very careful. Tremble with fear before the Lord. The, the Bible says, I think it's in the book of James, humble yourself under God and He will lift you up. If you are caught in this state that Israel is in, humble yourself and ask for repentance from God. Ask Him, uh, ask Him to grant you new life that would be able to see the depth of your sin and also the wonderful promise of God's blessing, which of course is new life in Christ, fellowship with a people, with with an actual people, not just some, you know, fellowship with some sort of idea about church, fellowship with real people, real people who have the real life of the Holy Spirit operating in their midst, and then from there begin to seek and to cry out that his lordship would be pressed out into every aspect of your life. There are areas of your life, even for mature believers, where Jesus Christ's lordship is not being consistently applied in your heart and in your life. And it's important to do so, especially considering what we see about God's desire for fruit. If the gospel does not produce fruit or that fruit withers, then there is something desperately wrong with the tree. Um, again, you can go ask Stephen Leopold. We were at the, uh, at the baptisms that we did a few weeks ago. Steve, Stephen and I went walking through the, the area of the trees, and we were looking at various trees, and some of them were gravely sick. And and we said to ourselves, I wonder if it'll be here next year. And the reason we were able to know that there, were, there are some sicknesses on trees which are made manifest in the leaves, which is somewhat of the fruit of a tree. But there are also other areas. But the point is, if the fruit is withering on the vine, the tree may have a root problem. The tree may have a nutrient problem. It's almost never a lack of sun. This is Ohio, and we're currently not under an ice age. Uh... The problem is always in the roots. The problem is always treated in the roots. And so if the fruit is withering, if if you think that you're a Christian and yet you never gain victory over sin, be careful not to presume that you are actually a true believer in Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who know, and many of you, the vast majority of you that I know personally, I can attest to and say there is authentic fruit. There is no cause for concern, but do not delude yourself thinking that like Israel, you are approved by God, assuming to and presuming to taste of God's good benefits and yet not have anything alive in the center of your heart towards Christ. Be careful if this is your state. And at this point, we see God wishes to bring fruit and it's God's intention that he's not looking at us and and cursing us because We are not willing to bear fruit, uh, but rather he is looking at us, desiring that we would bear fruit. There's at one point in the gospels, there's a time where they encounter a tree and it's not bearing fruit. And what does Jesus say? He says to dig around it, fertilize it and see what will happen next year. That's what I'm encouraging you to do. If you find yourself in a state, well, boy, this sounds a lot like me. Do not despair. The gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful and effective and you can be transformed, but it requires you to take honest account of what's going on in your heart and look at Jesus and say, do I really know him? And at this point, we see Christ loves this fruit. The gospel must bear fruit in our lives and that will take many forms. It won't just take the form of you're nice now and you treat everybody with politeness. It'll also take the form of... uh, you know, relationships, right? The Spirit has fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of you trying harder, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control, and there's no law against any of those things. Those are the only things in life that you can have turned up to a thousand percent and have no problems. And yet, it's not the fruit of you. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so we must be willing to yield to the Spirit's influence in our lives and not war against the Spirit. And so, um, at this point, we see that that is a type of fruit. But that's not the only fruit that must exist. Not only is the Prince of Peace going to reign in our relationships, but his authority must be brought out to bear in new conversions. Okay? If you're never sharing your faith, that's a very scary sign. Acts of service. If you're constantly thinking about yourself and constantly thinking about how can I make my life better, Instead of ever having the idea about loving your brother, that's a scary sign. Healings, deliverances, missions, preaching, all of it is types of fruit. Now, I'm not saying if you don't see any fruit in your life, go just start trying to do these in your own strength. No, repent before the Lord and he will lift you up. And at this point, we have to understand that God is wishing to make us into a beautiful garden together. It's not just about you. It's not just about me. First John says that if you claim to love God, but you hate all your brothers, or you hate any of your brothers, then you truly do not know God. The point is this, that you must live in harmony both with God and with f- your fellow man in such a way as to truly love them. You can't merely tolerate people. You can't merely say, oh, well, he's a just a troublesome brother in the church or, a, you know, a that cousin is always the black sheep of the family, and, and we'll just kind of allow them to come to the family you know, meals, but we won't really love them. We won't really uh, pray for them or, or wish good for them. Uh, loving your enemies is the distinct aspect of the Christian faith, which proves that we have the love of God going on in our hearts. I saw a wonderful video just to close with a great, uh, uh, well, what for me was a great experience. Uh, I believe it was the University of, of Wisconsin and uh, Ned Barubi actually posted this to Facebook, so you can go find it later. But I think it was the University of Wisconsin, and they they took a seven year old kid who um, has brain cancer, and they they got him a small uniform, and they you know they put the uniform on, and uh, they got the other team to agree with this and the refs and everybody. You know, it wasn't wasn't a real play, but they they let it happen anyway. And so they hike the ball and this seven-year-old kid's on the field with them and he's, they then give him the ball and allow him to, you know, run it in for like a 60 yard touchdown. And it's, you know, it's just, uh, and the, the defense put up a good show. They, you know, they tried to, uh, look like they were trying to tackle him. It, It was, it was wonderful. And, you know, I'm sitting there like a, you know, a wet sponge, just leaking a little bit from the, from the eyes and And the the point at at the end of that video, I was like, man, this is beautiful. This is a sign of God's common grace. And then I remembered Jesus said, love your enemies, not just love the people who it's cute to love, love your enemies. And how beautiful that was in that moment of seeing that this, it, it probably took hundreds of dollars to get the uniform and, you know, a small tiny helmet. They don't make helmets that small for kids. Um, and, you know, it took a lot of effort, and it was a great display of, of the love of God, even if these people weren't believers. It was, it was a sign of God's grace working in some people. But even beyond that, as Christians, we're supposed to display a type of love that exceeds how beautiful that is, and that is the love of our neighbors, which is the true, uh, a true sign that we are really uh, believers. So we, like the Israelites, have been brought out into a new land. Colossians says that we were in the domain of darkness, in the land, in the dominion, under the control of sin, sickness, Satan, death, just absolute destruction. And it says that we have been transferred out of that dominion into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, the kingdom of the Son of His love. And so we are exactly like these people entering the new land. We were formerly captive to our sin, but now we've been given freedom in Christ. And those who have freedom in Christ must not abuse it, but rather use it for their fellow, the fellow good of their neighbor. We've been transferred out of darkness and into light. We've been made alive, and therefore, we must continue to bear fruit. God already has bestowed upon us grace, and we must now be obedient as we inherit the wonderful promise. Taste and see that the Lord is good, and yes, you have to chew. Therefore, the calling of a Christian, the calling of you, The calling of me is to press out the lordship of Jesus Christ into every aspect of life. Political, residential, home, life, the way we uh, act in private, integrity issues, character issues, relationship issues, economy. All of life must bear the fruit of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you, God, that you would give us in those moments where we're tempted to turn to something other than you when we're tempted to taste of your goodness and your benefit and your wonderful promises. And Lord, when we're tempted to turn that into love of money or love of pride or love of the worship of man, uh, love of, of honor and the, you know, the things which are inappropriate for us to desire. God, we ask you in those moments that you would remind us of your deep desire for authentic fruit. And God, I pray that you would give us a clarity about our lives, that we would not believe that we are something when we are truly nothing. God, we ask you that you would give us clarity of vision, that we would be able to see you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.